Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you to search the Scriptures again with us as we investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the Kingdom of God. Our purpose in this series of programs is to ask the most fundamental questions about the Christian faith. What was the gospel that Jesus preached? What is the meaning of faith or belief? What did the New Testament church and the apostles offer the public as a summons to belief and action? What were they promising their followers? We want to demonstrate from the text of Scripture that these are vital questions for all of us. Jesus is not a figure you can dismiss. Oh, you may have a thousand objections to religion or churches, but you cannot make the failings of the church an excuse for ignoring the claims of Jesus Christ himself. We want to expose you to those claims, head on, so to speak, from the text of the records of his life preserved for us in the Scriptures. It makes sense to us that we should begin where Jesus began in any study of his mission. The New Testament gives us the impression that the term with which Jesus introduced his ministry was already familiar to his audience. The term kingdom of God presented no puzzle to Jesus or those who heard him when he introduced it with his famous call to action in the words recorded by Mark 1:14 and 15. Repent and believe in the gospel or good news about the kingdom of God. This gives us a fine introductory summary of Jesus' whole ministry in Galilee. And we can confirm that this was indeed the key term in all of his teaching by looking at Luke 4, verse 43. In that verse, Jesus said, I must proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God to the other cities also. That's the reason for which I was commissioned. This raises the question then, have we responded with intelligence to Jesus' first summons to obedience? With all the authority granted to him as one believing himself to be the Messiah, Jesus issued this call to the public, Repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom. It was a challenge to belief and action. Those words summarized in Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15 constitute the first command ever issued by Jesus himself, and it must therefore be of crucial importance to anyone desiring to follow Jesus and his teachings. Now, since Jesus here gave a command in the form of two imperatives, repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom, both terms, repentance and belief in the kingdom, must be defined. And to define them, we will not turn to church creeds or dicta of various religious authorities since the time of Jesus, but we will go back to the Hebrew Bible, which provides the environment and context in which Jesus lived. Jesus regarded that Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, as a treasury of divine information granted by the one God of Israel, and Jesus regarded himself as the promised Messiah, the promised King of Israel, who would deliver Israel from all her enemies and establish peace on the earth. Now we know from 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 12 that Israel had asked for a king to reign over them, and this despite the fact that the Lord their God was their king. But God graciously granted them the king that they had chosen, it was Saul in this case, and we read in verse 13 of 1 Samuel 12 that the Lord God had set a king over Israel. Now that king of Israel was not to reign on his own authority, but as God's vice-regent. 
And in the family of David, we see the ideal of kingship raised to its highest level. First Chronicles 28 and verse 5 provides an indispensable guide to the meaning of the term kingdom of God or kingdom of the Lord in Scripture. We read there that David said that God had set one of his sons, Solomon, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Now we should notice most carefully that this throne of the Lord does not mean God's throne in heaven, but the throne of the Lord on the earth in a specific geographical location. It's a throne which is occupied by a member of the Davidic family, and that family resides in Jerusalem and reigns over the house of Israel in Palestine. I want to emphasize at this point the crucial importance of understanding that the kingdom of the Lord in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, is the same as the kingdom of David established in Israel. In 1 Kings 2, verse 12, we read that Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. And then in 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 23, we find that Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king, instead of David his father, and he prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. 1 Chronicles 28.5 says that God has chosen Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. And 2 Chronicles 13 verse 8 speaks of people resisting the kingdom of the Lord in the hands of the sons of David. And then in 1 Chronicles 17.14, God says that he will settle Solomon in his house and his kingdom forever. And the word his there refers not to Solomon, but to God. The actual words of God were these, I will settle Solomon in my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. It is plain from those scriptures that the kingdom of the Lord, or the kingdom of God, is not a throne of God in heaven removed from this planet, but one that is visible on the earth and located in Jerusalem as the capital city of Palestine. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and announced in advance the career of her distinguished son, the angel stated that the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Now in the context of first century Palestine, what could that phrase throne of David mean but a re-established throne in the city of Jerusalem in Israel? There is no reason in the world why that phrase throne of David should suddenly mean a throne removed from the earth. That would mean to contradict the whole tradition from the Hebrew Bible where the throne of David invariably meant the throne of God in Israel on this earth. And so when we come to Acts 1 and verse 6, when the risen Christ appears to the disciples over a period of six weeks, we find the disciples asking their famous last question. It was this, Is the time now ripe for you to restore the kingdom of God to Israel? Now that was not the wrong question. It was a question that was natural in view of everything that Jesus had taught and in view of everything that the Hebrew prophets had taught. Now Jesus did not rebuke the disciples for that question. He simply said that it was not for them to know the time when the kingdom of God was coming, when the kingdom would be restored to Israel. 
In verse 5, Jesus had told the disciples that within a few days the Holy Spirit would be poured out on the church. Now, their reaction to that was simply this. That must mean that the kingdom of God is coming now. There were passages in the Old Testament which had suggested that in the new age of the kingdom, the Spirit of God would be poured out in abundance. What they didn't know was that there was to be a long interval between the coming of the Spirit and the coming of the kingdom of God. And that fact is established clearly by Jesus in Acts 1.7, where he says it's not for you to know the time when the kingdom is coming, but as I've just told you, the Spirit is coming in a few days' time. So the Spirit of God came instead of the kingdom of God. Now, it would be most unwise, therefore, to mount a theory to the effect that the kingdom of God was established at the ascension. That was precisely the misunderstanding of the disciples. And Jesus cleared that up for us as well as for them by saying that the kingdom of God is to come at a time unknown in the future while the Spirit of God was to be poured out upon them in the immediate future. Now, a whole theory of biblical interpretation has been built on the idea that the kingdom of God was in fact established at the ascension. But Acts chapter 1 verses 5 and 7 are sufficient to refute that theory and to show that the kingdom of God is in fact an event of the future ahead of us. Now, the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, about which the disciples asked in Acts 1.6, obviously implies the restoration of the throne of David. Those two ideas were bound up together in so many prophecies from the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus had promised his own disciples that in the new age, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, that they too would sit on thrones to administer the twelve tribes of Israel. You'll find that in Matthew 19.28. Now, when is that event to take place? It was when the Son of Man sits on his throne of glory. Now, when is that to be? Well, Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31 has the answer for us. It says, When the Son of Man comes, then he sits on his throne of glory. Do you see how clear Jesus' words are here and how simple that scheme is? It is when the Son of Man comes that he sits on his throne of glory. And we're still looking forward to that coming. It is when the Son of Man comes that the disciples will reign with him and administer the twelve tribes regathered in Israel. All of that, of course, amounts to the restoration of the throne of David in Palestine. It is to that glorious future that Jesus and the apostles look forward. And we must keep our bearings in all of this by maintaining our rootage in the Hebrew Bible, which is the document that sustained and inspired Jesus throughout the entirety of his ministry. We hope then that we have demonstrated sufficiently the fact that the coming of the Spirit at the ascension of Jesus is not the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, Peter had more to say about that great promised restoration in a later verse in Acts, in Acts 3, verse 21. That verse says that heaven must retain Jesus at the right hand of the Father until the time comes for the restoration of all the things spoken by the Old Testament prophets. Now, there's no doubt about what those things were. The great promise made by the Old Testament was that the throne of David would be reinstated in Jerusalem. Every religious Jew of that time knew that to be so. Jesus said nothing to suggest that the Jews had completely misunderstood 
what was meant by the kingdom of God. What Jesus did say, of course, was that the kingdom would only come after the suffering and death of the Messiah. That was the part that the Jews found so difficult to understand. They wanted the kingdom then and there. They were scandalized by a dying Messiah. But if they'd known their own scriptures better, they would have seen that the Messiah had to suffer and die first. Only later would the kingdom come. Now, it was not that the kingdom was postponed. The kingdom will indeed come on time in God's own time. The kingdom gospel was offered to the Jews by Jesus, and that very same gospel of the kingdom then went to the Gentiles. All were invited, Jew and Gentile alike, and all are still invited to enter that kingdom of God when it comes. All Jesus' parables are dedicated to the theme about how we must prepare for the coming kingdom. God is selecting his aristocracy, those who are going to rule with Jesus in the kingdom of God on earth when it comes with the arrival of the Messiah in the future. One commentator described this future of the Christians so beautifully when he said, and I quote, that the church is the ruling aristocracy, the official administrative staff of the coming kingdom. End of quotation. That was from Eric Sauer. We might add then that a saint in the Bible is one appointed to rule with Christ in the coming kingdom on the earth. Our time is running out for today. We invite you to check our findings carefully in the Bible. Write to us or call us at the telephone number which will be given shortly for some free literature for your own personal Bible study. Join us again as we continue to probe these vital questions about life and immortality as Jesus offers it to us in his good news about the kingdom of God.